The reading is from Jonah, chapter 1, verse 17 to chapter 2, verse 10. Now the Lord provided a big fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help, and you listened to my cry. You held me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the current swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down, the earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, St Michael's. It's really wonderful to be here inside St Michael's to preach to you from inside the fish. And thank you so much to Tim Norman for reading the Bible for us this morning. And we are in the fish, experiencing God's unfathomable grace and trying to understand Jonah's unfathomable heart. He might be inside a fish, but his prayer is like a slippery fish that you've got to hold with both hands to keep hold of it, like two ends trying to understand what we have here in Jonah chapter 2. So first of all, hand number one around our slippery fish of a prayer. Jonah is a successful prophet. Now, you might be saying to yourself, have you not listened to Guy last week? Have you not read Jonah number one? That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Jonah's experience when he's uh, in 2 Kings 14. He is a prophet, unlike Hosea and Amos, who brings forth the word of God. And in his lifetime, he sees that word fulfilled. He says, as 2 Kings uh, outlines, that the northern boundaries of the kingdom of Israel will be restored. And they are. Jeroboam II and his armies restore those northern boundaries. Now, this is important because those boundaries had probably not been restored since the time of King Solomon. So this message to the people of Israel was of that wonderful time of the fullness of the kingdom under King Solomon. But that happened during a time where we know from two kings, Jeroboam II did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and the people were still worshipping idols. So Jonah, the first bookend, we have experienced him being successful in his lifetime and seeing the undeserved mercy of God and God's message of blessing upon the people of Israel whilst they are disobedient. The second hand we need to hold around our slippery fish, or a bookend if you like, is Jonah 4. Jonah declares once the, uh, he's given his message to the Ninevites and the Ninevites have repented, he basically says to God, I knew you'd do it. I knew it, I knew it, I was right, I knew you'd do it. How did he proclaim that? Well, that's because, of course, he'd seen before 
God's undeserving mercy upon the people of Israel. In 2 Kings 14, he's seeing the same experience of the mercy of God on people who he thinks don't deserve it. And he can't tolerate that. He cannot tolerate the God who blesses undeserving people. So now we've got our bookends or our two hands around our slippery fish of a prayer. What is actually happening in this prayer? Well, firstly, let's deal with our location. As I've said, it's the only part of the Bible where we here have a prayer inside a mammal. Jonah has fled by the sea. There's been a storm in the sea caused by God because he's disobedient. And then he's been chucked into the sea. The sea is synonymous with chaos. But God doesn't part the sea as we know that he can do. God doesn't send a chariot to rescue him like he does Elijah. God sends in the midst of Jonah's mess a rescue. And the irony here, God sends an obedient mammal to rescue a very disobedient human being. So whilst he's inside the fish, having dealt with our location, that he experiences or prays about God's unfathomable mercy. The first point about this is that, of course, this is all entirely of Jonah's making. As we say the creed often, we kind of are okay with those sins that are sort of through negligence, through weakness. But this is through his own deliberate, persistent fault. And we often find this difficult when God steps into the situations where we know that we are totally culpable. And we know, and he rescues and comes in, um, and we are utterly dependent on him, and say to him, I don't deserve this. Of course, that is God exhibiting the DNA of the gospel that we sometimes camouflage. You never did deserve it. And the second part about God's unfathomable mercy here inside the fish is the prayers that Jonah prays. He's going down, down, down. And for every time he's going down, God's rescue is described as going up. He says, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the depths of the grave, I called for help and you listened to my cry. To the roots of the mountain I sank down, the earth beneath uh, burned me, buried me forever, by, but you brought my life up from the pit, O Lord my God. So we have this sensation, obviously, and, and literal, of him going down, down into the ocean. And we often feel that with those choices like Jonas that we make. We make one little choice and then we feel ourselves being pulled down, down, down. I don't know whether any of you have had an experience like Jonah had in the sea. Unfortunately, once on holiday in Italy, I had that experience. I was a short distance out from the shore. I'd gone into the sea days beforehand to the same place. Thankfully, I had my board with me. And I went into the sea and I was only, as I say, a few feet out. And then suddenly I wasn't you know, beneath my, my depth. I felt this undertow, this torrent of the sand around my feet. It was pulling me down. I began to cry out to my friend who was still on the beach in my very basic Italian, but she couldn't hear me. And I had that sense of like understanding it. This is how people drown feet from the shore. This small silent voice said, get back on your board. Thankfully, it was tied to me and I re reeled it in, got back on my board. I came out of the sea looking, as my friend said, who had eventually come like a drowned rat. 
God, in his mercy, had rescued me. And we heard, unfortunately, that evening that people had died in the sea that day because a storm had happened and the sea was a different beast that day. But that sensation of being pulled down, down, down is what Jonah is describing here. And yet all of the call of God in his response, he's being pulled down because he's fleeing God, he's fleeing life. And when he calls out and his prayer goes into the temple, God pulls him up, rescues him and gives him life. But the unfathomable ace, I think, of God's mercy here is from bookend number two. We know that Jonah does not come good in the end. And yet here is God in his mercy sending rescue to Jonah, knowing that Jonah is not going to come good. Now, some would say God only knows contingencies. I don't believe that the omniscient God doesn't know the choices Jonah would make. It matches his unfathomable mercy, as we've seen to the Israelites, and we'll see later on to the Ninevites. In his mercy, he acts to rescue Jonah. And if you're sitting there today thinking, Lord, I'm here again, it's my own fault, and do you know what, Lord, I cannot guarantee that this thing, it might be an addiction, isn't going to get me again in a few months. Look at Jonah, God's unfathomable mercy when he simply cries out to God and puts his dependence on him. But as we will see, this is what Jonah cannot handle about God. This final part of the, of the, of the psalm that Jonah prays is the part of the psalm that I found it most difficult in my hands or in my bookends to hold. It begins with uh, Jonah saying that his life is ebbing away. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose before you to your holy temple. Then he says this, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. But I, with a song of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. Salvation comes from the Lord. Unfortunately, it's a Lord that Jonah cannot accept. You see, who is Jonah referring to here when he says, those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs? Well, it's not the sailors, because last seen by in the story, chucking Jonah over into the sea, declaring to Yahweh. It's almost certainly not Israel, because that's not what Jonah's story is about. It's about, sadly, the Ninevites. And almost certainly, this prayer is his description of the Ninevites. I have reacted to this with anger and near to tears. How dare Jonah, Jonah the messenger to the Ninevites, refer to them as people who cling to worthless idols, who forfeit the grace that could be there, when he was the messenger of grace and he hadn't gone to tell them. This is not an attitude like we see of Paul in Athens, when he sees that uh, altar to the unknown God and his heart is bursting to explain to them about Christ and explain to them the false idol that they're worshipping. No, this is Jonah still believing that God's mercy should be reserved for certain people. And as we look at this psalm, and at the end as I've just read, there's an awful lot of eyes in there. I will make good, I will vow, I. This is not the stuff of Psalm 51, of David's fraught, repentant prayer to God when he has slept with Bathsheba and killed her husband. 
No, this is not against me, you, you only, Lord, have I sinned. This is not about God's initiation to restore the joy of David's salvation to him. It explains the second bookend, or other hand of the slippery fish. Jonah, unfortunately, this Jonah 2, is not a passage of repentance. It is still the description of a stubborn man who wants God to do what he thinks God should do. And the irony, if I had more time, is that actually verse 8, when we get to the end of the book, describes Jonah. Because the God he has created is not the God of the Bible, who in his sovereign grace will have mercy on whom he will have mercy and will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. And Jonah still is in this situation, even though, as you've seen, in the first part of Jonah 2, God's undeserving mercy has poured down on Jonah himself in the same way as he did for the Israelites in restoring the kingdom, in the same way we will see with the Ninevites. And yet still Jonah's heart is hard. And when he says at the end, salvation belongs to God, it does. But the God he is describing is not the God of the Bible. But finally, St. Michael's, I had to ask my question of myself with that anger and being close to tears at Jonah's reaction. Is Jonah's heart so unfathomable? It's quite an unusual time, I felt, to be preaching this particular passage to St. Michael's. We are, as a church family, we have prayed. We are in a time of interregnum between vicars. We are looking forward dearly to the new uh, shepherd who will come to lead us here. But when we look at this passage, Jonah thought that salvation only belonged to the Israelites, only belonged to those of whom he belonged. Now, in a new era, there are often many other believers who come and join a new era in a new place. And it has struck me, and I will paraphrase now to save anybody's blushes, but it has been described to me that this is going to be great. We've got a new vicar, and he's preached in a university town, and so there'll be lots of people who then move to London for work, and they're going to come and join us here. Now, of course, the motives of anybody's heart is between them and the Lord. And of course, we welcome anybody who walks through our door here at St. Michael's. But, and the Bible also says that the gospel is preached through false motive and true, and that the only thing that matters is the gospel is preached. Amen. But this is about what our hearts are like in St. Michael's. Are we really wanting people to come here and desiring just the numbers? Are we really wanting people to come here or even to stay here who are beyond the time or acting not in accordance with the call of God? May we desire every single person who already knows the Lord, who he has called to bring here with open arms. But may our heart not desire numbers. May our heart desire the new growth. But that was the new growth that Jonah also couldn't accept. This is a rare story in that there are only three of the minor prophets who have a message for the Gentiles. And Jonah is one of the rare examples of actually being sent away from the promised land to go and deliver the message, obviously a message of judgment that leads to repentance in person. So he was saying, not the Ninevites, because he had, as I say, these conditions on who God could call. Now, for us here in St. Michael's, I don't think any of us are consciously that crass 
to say, well, I don't want this particular group of people, or I don't want uh, people who uh, might have lots of children, or I don't want there to be many older people, or I don't want there to be people from very different backgrounds to me, or poor people. None of us would potentially be that crass, consciously. But if you think about an individual who's done you harm in the past, who's maybe affected your career and did it deceitfully, and not only did they walk through the door of the church here, but God has redeemed them, and then God chooses to use them and blesses them and brings many, many people to faith through them here in front of you in this church. Do we really have a heart that would welcome that? It is a time for us to search our hearts. But I think it's even more subtle than that, this I don't want the Ninevites here because I don't want God to bring those type of people. I think, and I speak personally here, that I think what we say to ourselves is, and I've said this, I do not belong in St. Michael's because I am not. How subtle is that? It's very Garden of Eden, very original sin. You turn the focus in on yourself, it becomes about yourself, but actually very clearly you are saying that that reaction to not belonging is because these other people are here. Now, the irony of my I do not belong here in St. Michael's because I am not was I do not belong in St. Michael's uh, Chester Square because I am not posh. I was saying that to myself for years, including the years when I was a member of the House of Lords. Now, the irony will not be lost on you without making too many comments about my workplace. You see, those subtleties of us feeling unsettled in the place where God has actually placed us are very, are very deep. And also, I had to laugh this week when obviously having gotten over that and repented of it, and these things are often born deeply. Mine began because I was born in a place called Oakham. And Oakham has a very famous public school. I didn't go to that public school. I grew up feeling unworthy, less than the other children in the town because I didn't wear that, that fancy black and white kilt. Then I began my career, and of course, every time I said I was born in Oakham, many people said to me, oh, so you went to Oakham school then? I'm like, no, there was a state comprehensive school in the town, compounding the feeling of unworthiness and that somehow these people are different to me. Now, the irony, having got, gotten over that, obviously, and God dealing with that, is that this very week, in my current role, every two weeks, I am the main contact point for the Boarding School Association and the Independent Schools Council, who are the main representative bodies of our public schools. I couldn't help but laugh to myself when I was in that meeting this week, how the Lord brings us full circle and often brings us to serve and to love those people that we've had that attitude towards. So Jonah's problem with the Ninevites was actually a problem he had with God. He did not want God to bless certain people that Jonah considered undeserving, not like him, even though Jonah had received his mercy. May it be all of our prayers for this new season that we welcome all whom God brings to us, who will be as unworthy as we are to receive the amazing grace of God. Then St. Michael's Chester Square, we will have the heart of Jesus, not Jonah. <laughs>